Blog Talk oh, hi, everyone. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening. Hi, everyone. This is the People's Medicine Show. We had a little mix-up with the intro music, but I'm going to have some more intro music. So this is the People's Medicine Show. My name's Sean. Um, I do this show every month on the first Thursday of the month at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. It's done live. You're allowed to call in and participate. Otherwise, if you're listening to me as a recorded podcast, welcome to the show. I have a lot planned for tonight. I always like to stumble upon music throughout the month and and think, oh, that would be a great song to open the show with. And this month, I was thinking of an old Al Green song, and it was on one of the albums from that he did in the '80s, and he was called Reverend Al Green at that time. And it reminded me a lot about how. I really fell in love with talk radio, listening to Al Green be interviewed by Larry King about 1985. And I would like to hear a recording of that interview because I remember just listening mesmerized. And I think it was back when Larry King was still on as an all-night show. And it might have gone on for two or three hours of them just talking and Al discussing his life. And he has a really interesting life. He was a top R&B performer. And then in the early 70s, uh, his girlfriend threw hot grits all over him, and he was really traumatized, and I think his girlfriend ended up um, killing herself, and it was quite a tragedy. But um, it was amazing to hear Al Green tell the story himself instead of me telling Al Green's story. But maybe someday we'll get some of those Larry King interviews on YouTube. So this song that was in my head, it was like an earworm. It kept going on in my head. It was called Blessed, and it was like, Blessed from the service. And um, when I went back and found this album, it was out of print. Uh, I listened to Blessed, and it, it sounded very dated. There was about two or three songs on this album from 1989, and it sounded kind of dated because of the um, synthetic uh, electronic drum sound that was you know, the signature of that time in, in history. And it's funny how some of those bad drums uh, have infected some of the 1980s music. But I think as time goes on, the 1980s music is looking better and better. So I wanted to play another track from this album. It was called I Get Joy. And um, the track's called Mighty Clouds of Joy. And it's so cool. I have all my audio clips numbered tonight, so I don't think I'm going to forget to play anything that I wanted to share with the audience. So this is from the 1989 uh, Adaprint album, I Get Joy, 
Reverend Al Green.
So that was the Reverend Al Green from 1989's album, I Get Joy. And um, it's funny, I went ahead and I purchased another um, 1980s album from him, and it was called Soul Survivor. And I remember at the time, uh, Soul Survivor seemed to um, have more of a pop since you know feel to it i think they called the genre contemporary christian and um but then come 2019 listening to these two records one's from like 1985 and it's a little bit poppy and then this more traditional album from 1989 uh, um the the traditional one just withstands the test of time and it's been in my car playing for the past week and I think it really affects my attitude when I'm listening to real happy music and uh, filling my eyes and ears with good things and not dwelling on uh, all the darkness sometimes. So I picked uh, an overall, um, you know, first topic for tonight's show, and that topic is soup, S-O-U-P. And soup can mean a lot of things. And when I think of soup, I think of love, that... um. When I make it for myself, I feel love. If someone makes it for me, I feel love. When I give it to someone else, I feel like I'm loving that person. So soup is really um, sort of a synonym for love to me. But it can mean so much. It's like a hodgepodge, a, a variety of things, and how we all probably have our own ways of making soup and how we have probably have our own staple ingredients, which we would call a soup. And one of the ingredients that I love to put in my soup, I, I in the past few years since I've been studying about herbal medicine, I've discovered burdock is one of my favorite things. So I'll um, always dump some burdock in. And burdock's one of those root vegetables. It doesn't get too soft. So it's always going to have a little bit of a consistency to it. And the fiber content of something like burdock is amazing. And it doesn't have um, a real strong taste like dandelion root. So it, it, I think it's more suitable for, you know, just make, putting into a soup than um, other types of um, dried herbs that are popular amongst herbalists. But... um. Oh, wow. Here we go. My first um, mental flip. But yeah, here I am contemplating about soup. But so today I wanted to share. So last month I read this long article about um, um, mescaline. And it was so long. And, and I just picked an article. I was like, oh, that looks pretty comprehensive. Let me go ahead and read the whole thing for the radio show. <laughs> now, in retrospect, I, I really have to look at these articles before I just start reading them because that went on and on. There was a lot of words in it that I couldn't even pronounce. But it, we generally arrived at the conclusion that, oh, yeah, the dose of mescaline is about 100 to 200 milligrams. And I could have just said that in one sentence instead of reading that long article from I think it was from Reality Sandwich. So in the past month, I, I resubscribed to the New York Times. I got this deal where they charge a dollar a week, and I got tired of hitting the paywall and not being able to read things. So I'm now a subscriber to the New York Times. And they have a regular column. It's new, and it examines a lot of these pop things that become popular in our culture. And I suppose... There's a thing called celery juice, which is a, 
popular amongst uh, nutrition people right now. So this is from their regular column called Scam or Not. And um, it's, the title is, Is Celery Juice a Sham? There are claims that the staid, crunchy workhorse usually found beside buffalo wings can heal autoimmune diseases, among other benefits. Is that true? Celery juice has been seemingly everywhere. The murky green potion looks like water from an algae-filled pond, yet its disciples have been downing it by the glass fill. Yes, that staid, crunchy workhorse, usually smeared with peanut butter, has gone to the top of the vegetable cart. What is celery juice said to do? Stories posted to Instagram and elsewhere are anecdotal, but say that the juice is the biggest medical remedy for digestive issues, autoimmune disorders, psoriasis, acne, chronic fatigue syndrome, acid reflux, the shingles, virus, strep bacteria, and weight loss. Many of the stories credit Anthony William, a self-professed originator of the celery juice craze. Does it work? There's no scientific evidence to support any of the claims being made, said Rachel E. Scher, an assistant research scientist in nutrition at the University of California, Davis. There aren't large studies in humans on the topic, and the little research that exists on the vegetable has been cellular or animal. Nutritionists say other factors could be influencing juicers' sense of well-being. Better hydration from celery's water content. Celery is literally a tall drink of water, 94% so, or a placebo effect. <clears throat> Should you still drink if there is no evidence? Overall, it's a healthy juice, said Elizabeth Bradley, medical director of the for functional medicine. Celery juice has potassium and vitamin K than tomato juice and carrot juice. However, it is lower in important nutrients like vitamin A, which is abundant in carrot juice. Unlike other vegetables that may lose polyphenols and antioxidants from the pulp or skin when juiced, Dr. Bradley said it is unclear how much loss occurs when juicing whole celery stalks. Nevertheless, nutritionists recommend consuming a variety of vegetables and their juices because they have all their own combination of phytochemicals, antioxidants, vitamins, and minerals. The salty flavor in one cup of celery juice comes from the 215 milligrams of sodium, an essential electrolyte that helps our bodies maintain a balance of fluids. The recommended dietary allowance is less than 2,300 milligrams daily, but most Americans exceed that. It is a habit that can increase blood pressure, a risk factor for heart disease and stroke. Juicing retains the taste and concentrates, retains the taste and concentrates the nutrients, but many preparations reduce the fiber, which nutritionists say is the best part. The juice contains 3.78 grams per cup, still far below the 25 to 30 grams recommended primarily from food. Fiber helps people feel full and maintain regularity. Like kale and spinach, celery contains antioxidants and may have anti-inflammatory properties. Compared to the stalks, the leaves are more than 20 times higher in flavones, a class of flavonoids, 
and compounds found in plants with antioxidant properties. According to a 2017 review in Advances in Nutrition, food is complex and just because a food is high in flavoids doesn't translate into guaranteed health benefits. Compounds like flavoids are modified after they are absorbed and these modified forms might not have the same effect as what is demonstrated in preclinical studies, according to the review. For those who were consuming a few vegetables and are now drinking celery juice, nutritionists say that's a good change. Why celery juice is suddenly everywhere. <laughs> Many credit Mr. William who wrote a book called Celery Juice, the most powerful medicine of our time, healing millions worldwide. He shares advice with his large fan base through his podcast, his website, his New York Times best-selling books, or in his contributions to Gwyneth Paltrow's site, Goop. Mr. William, who also uses the moniker Medical Medium, is neither a medical doctor nor formally trained in nutrition, and his process is unconventional. Spirit starts to talk to me, and I write every word exactly the way Spirit wants it, until I have a stack of notepads many feet high, he said, adding, it's a gift that was given to me. His claims are as large as the fields of celery in California, the country's biggest producer. Nutritionists call his assertions unfounded. Any reputable scientist would say there's nothing here, said David Levinsky, a professional, a professor of nutrition and psychology at Cornell University. And I guarantee you next year there will be some other juice or food or magical mushroom that will come out and offer these same properties. However, across the country, according to an analysis from the United States Department of Agriculture's Economic Research Service, cartons of celery were fetching $15.05 earlier this month, a 42.8% increase from the same time the year before, although far below the high of $73.66 in April. Wow. Woo. How was celery used before? Celery is from the plant Apium graviolens and is a relative of carrots, parsley, and cilantro. Before being cast to the bottom of the crisper, it had quite an illustrious history. Charles Davis, a plant evolutionary biologist at Harvard University, said that the Egyptians placed wild celery in King Tutankhamun's tomb in 1325 BC and that the first cultivated medicinal use of celery dates to 400 BC by the Romans. Greeks drank wine from it, and winning athletes wore crowns of the foliage of, in Pan-Hellenic games. The seeds and fruit have long been used medicinally. I find it intriguing that the purported medical usage of the plant is being revived today, but is instead extracted from the vegetative parts. Dr. Davis said in an email interview. Will celery juice hurt you? There's nothing in it that's going to hurt you, said doc Dr. Levitsky said. Celery can have a slight diuretic effect, which may increase urination and reduce some bloat. Nutritionists say patients should not discontinue seeing their doctor or treatment in favor of the celery juice regimen. But there is something larger at stake. Dr. Levitsky said, 
Believing in miraculous remedies can leave patients vulnerable to just about anything, even harmful treatments. It thwarts belief in science and medicine to some magical mystery cure, and there ain't no such thing, he said. Is celery juice a scam? It's definitely not a miracle um, juice, said Rebecca Scritchfield, dietitian and author of Body Kindness. It can join the list of the snake oil remedies. Okay, Ms. Scritchfield said no. Okay, Mr. William, for his part, contends he is not misleading anyone. He neither owns a celery farm nor sells the juice himself. I'm not saying it's a cure-all, he said. Nutritionists say to drink celery juice if it is enjoyable, but don't take stock in all the claims. So there we go. We went from soup to um, snake oil salesman, but that is interesting that um, the medical medium, I saw him on um, Facebook and all these places um, maybe three years ago, and I guess he's only become more and more popular. And um, yeah, we'll see how it, it kind of was an interesting article um, because uh, they have to pull out people to, to poo-poo it. <laughs> and it's funny that they really didn't have anybody sticking up for the medical medium that says, yeah, everything he says is absolutely true, and just using celery by itself is going to heal you. So I don't know really how they're painting the cel celery juice regimen. But anyway, I, I buy, I purchase, I purchase celery right now, and I'm investigating growing my own. I live in a beautiful part of the United States where I can grow vegetables pretty much year-round. So celery is definitely a vegetable which I love, and I consider putting the entire celery in. You know, I, I see the way it's sold. It's oftentimes they chop off the rich green tops of the celery, and that's the part that I really believe brings soup alive, you know, as one of my soup ingredients. Other soup ingredients which I really enjoy are um, – dried mushrooms and there's they're just so shelf stable and I could just grab them and and put them in soup and one of the things I love doing now with dried mushrooms also is I'll make an infusion so I'll weigh out one or two ounces and put it in um a quart jar and cover it with water and and let it just stew and then then I could just cut the mushrooms after they've infused in the jar and either drink the juice or put it in my cooking recipes and so that makes um, um, using dried mushrooms a lot easier if they're not already pre-sliced. You just make an infusion with them in a quart jar of water, uh, boiling water, and let them sit for like overnight or even 24 hours. I've, I've infused mushrooms and then I forget they're in the refrigerator for a long time. But as far as infusions, uh, one of the things I... I'm amazed with is I often will forget all about making a cold brew and either the cold brew of both Linden and Comfrey, I can leave them for days and I'll go ahead and strain them and they do not have any spoiled or turned taste. And that is kind of a cool uh, benefit of making the hot infusion before you're making a cold infusion because I think the hot infusion really pulls out all the uh, nu nutrition properties that are going to turn, um, that are going to um, start decaying and rotting, and you can just drink the the hot infusion within a day or two, 
And you, maybe if you don't, you're not in the mood for a cold infusion, you can have a few on board all ready to go in your refrigerator for several days. So that is kind of a cool thing that I've been learning about infusions is I like the cold brewed ones, but I've heard people say, oh, you don't want to hot brew it before you cold brew it. And I'm like, ah. Oh, whatever. I think uh, we all just find our own way, just like making soup. And so if you have any soup recipes that you want to talk about, you're welcome to call in. Or um, I don't have the... Oh, okay. The guest call-in number is 646-929-2463. But I'm going to spend most of the show probably just talking about cannabis. And I, I grew cannabis legally... I have a medical card in my state, and um, I have to obey certain rules. Uh, for my state, it's I'm supposed to grow 10 plants, and each plant's supposed to be uh, tagged with uh, a registration number. So there's people all over the United States right now that in 2019, they're growing their very first legal cannabis garden for themselves. So there's many, many people just like me that perhaps grew it illegally for many years and there's always this real fear that there's a lot on the line, a lot to lose. And one of the coolest things that I heard this month, I listened to a lot of podcasts and Kyle Cushman has um, a podcast called Kyle Cushman Monologues and Kyle is um, a, a famous uh, cannabis uh, cultivator and he taught I think my generation of people, people around 50 years old, we all basically knew about Kyle Cushman in the early 90s. And that was through these articles in High Times. And I think the first one was called Adam's Garden. And he described in great detail how he grows marijuana under lights with soil in the most organic way. And those articles really were just a staple and the photographs of his garden just were probably what caught all, everyone's attention because there are these big purple juicy plants and he had a specific way of um, uh, pruning his plants so that they produced more uh, profitable marijuana flower. But it is kind of cool that in this day and age we're you know, we could defoliate our plants a little bit, but it's not really a game breaker. If you if you have 10 plants that are growing under the sunshine in your backyard, it <laughs> basically defoliating them would probably just to add a little bit of um, air circulation to it and not really, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to waste water. I don't want to waste electricity. I don't want to waste my lights that I'm growing this under where it's just amazing if you go on YouTube and you look at people, they're showing their faces, they're not hiding their identities. They're like, hey, look at my look at my pot plants that I grew. And I'm just one of them. As each one of these plants is maturing, I'm like, oh, I'll post a picture on Instagram. And But I'm real happy with, um, I'm apprenticing with a local herbalist here, and she's teaching me all about moon cycles. And today's one of the days that um, it would be beneficial for me to inoculate my um, psilocybin cultivation uh, jars 
But I don't want to get too off topic with uh, growing uh, psilocybin. Maybe I'll talk about it later in the show. And it, I, I got a little bit sidetracked with my introduction of who Kyle Cushman is. But he describes he's grown marijuana under lights probably hundreds and hundreds of times. And he lived in many different places. And he had to always be changing his apartments and keeping under wraps. And he was doing this for like 40 years. And then he describes also how even in the past 10 years when he was a legal consultant in the state of California, that when you started a cannabis grow, something could always happen with regulations or federal oversight, which could actually sabotage um, your garden. And he describes in this next clip that this is his first time ever really having a sort of a zero liability, no worry experience about growing cannabis. So uh, here's Kyle Cushman. This is only a four minute clip, but he goes into good detail of the joy of having a garden. Being that it was the first harvest I did in like five years, and it was the first one I ever did with my wife, Fun. we chopped it down and kind of reveled in the fact, check this, that it was the first garden in my career I've ever grown that was liability free. Yes, it was a good feeling. <coughs> a hundred percent liability free. I grew five plants. I flowered five plants in California. In case you don't know, we're allowed to have six flowering plants. What everyone should be growing. Which everybody should be doing, and that's why I'm building Grow Your Own Green with Kyle Cushman, launching soon. Grow your own dot oh, green. Yeah. Go check it out and sign oh, yeah. up. Uh, sign up with your email, and that'll entitle you to get into some free shit that'll probably be paid later. So grow sign your own dot green. Yes, yeah, sign grow up now. Check it, check it out. Exactly. So. It's a new website launching. And uh, yeah, so um, I had fun growing at home, and and the fact that it was um, that I wasn't putting my wife and my child in literally any danger. Like, there was zero liability. There wasn't, like, it, it, it's almost hard to describe because it's an emotional thing because all these years that you grow and you move and you to all these different states, you, you, you convince yourself that it's okay. Sure. And, and then you move to California, and there are these certain rules that if you conform to, yeah. it is okay. Yeah. But then the police, they get their own things in their own mind, and they decide... <laughs> how it's really going to be sometimes in the end for some people. And so there was really no 100% uh, assurity. You always, you know, you, you always felt like you could trip up somehow, mm -hmm. you know? And this was, this was untrippable. <laughs> <laughs> trippy. Very trippy. We really, we sat and we really just kind of just, just talked about how, how wonderful it was to be able to just grow your own meds. And, and, Oh my goodness! And then it leads to more love and sharing. So I get a call from an old friend I haven't heard from in like 25 years, an old High Times um, compadre. One of them, uh, there's a better word than that. Uh, associate. An old associate, right? And um, associate. So Susie, you know, the very industrious one of the pair, she takes all of the trim and she put it in the magical butter machine with uh, uh, Everclear made these amazing tinctures, strawberry cough tincture, and Alexander, and the Stardog, 
And um, and so now we have these little vials of tincture that I've had two people call me in the last couple of weeks. One is suffering from chemo of cancer, and another one has really serious stomach illnesses, and I'm able to just give this stuff to them and provide actual... I mean, <laughs> I hope you guys like listening to me. T- you see, I know you guys out there. You see, you guys are listening because you want to. I got these guys captive here in the room, and they're like, "When is he, when is he gonna?" Li-? No, anyway, so nah, nah. sharing this no, stuff, man. No, that tincture I had some, man. It was delicious. Did you like? Did we give you some? Yeah, it tasted really good, and you know, it's a kind of sativa dominant strain. You got the Alexander, but it was very mellow. That's what Susie was saying, that she thought it was very calming was. and soothing. Yeah, it's great. And yeah, so I got I got messages back from uh, these two women that you know it really helps a lot, and. Uh, you know, that's the whole thing about cannabis is when you grow your own cannabis, it tends to lead to unfettered sharing. For sure. Because, you know, it doesn't really cost a lot to produce it. It's a plant from the ground. Yeah, exactly. And 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 then when you give it all that love and all that attention, it's like making a big bowl of really good pasta with sure. spaghetti sauce. You want to share it with as many Absolutely. people as you can. <laughs> it's like Absolutely. food is love and weed is love. So yeah, Kyle um is he's a much better speaker than me, but he says you guys a lot more than I do. <laughs> but it, it it is a wonderful feeling though to have extra cannabis and then to just share it in as people approach as people appear, you just give it away because it, it really does um, decay, and I'm I'm very much attracted to being able to preserve um, the the resin glands. But it is just so amazing that while I was watching my cannabis grow this year, that it, most of the time it, it needs to remain in the flowering uh, stage for a minimum of like 60 days. And oftentimes there's some plants that are um, dying back, maybe they're getting attacked by pests, and you pull them early, and you you go ahead and just um, trim them up and hang them and dry them, and you do the best you can with with cannabis that's um, harvested early. And every so often I'll try something that's um, not quite mature, and go, holy moly, this is actually stronger in some ways than the fully matured cannabis. So it, it's quite a, a plant to ally and to get to know and learn and, and be with because it's like it's always pulling uh, tricksters on me. Um, so I, I, I want I, my next um, um, clip I have is a pretty short clip, but Someone called into the Adam Dunn show, and they were talking about how they had some marijuana that was only 30 30 days into flower, and they picked it and tried it, and it's like, woo! And um, I've been having that experience for the past few months. I I had a bunch of my ganja that seeded, and it takes on all the – when cannabis flowers are uh, fertilized, (laughs) Um, they um, and are producing seeds it almost seems like the the smells and everything of it are just amazing and 
it is sort of like the way they describe manna in the Bible, where like, you know, smoke it when you got it, you know, use it or lose it, because it's going to, all those beautiful smells do have a, they decrease. And um, I live in an area where it's a lot, it's very hard to keep my drying rooms under 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So it just is evaporating as it goes along. The longer I, I hold on to the canvas, the more it evaporates and loses that really pungent, you know, wonderful smell. So I'm, I've been very mindful of that for the past year since I've been growing uh, cannabis in this area. And uh, it's, it's quite fun to, like, who can I share this with? I have too much. <laughs> so I'll um, play a clip from the Adam Dunn Show where uh, they come up with a pretty unique term for this phenomena of um, terpenes evaporating and marijuana changing as as time goes on. And when you're early like that, you get that really yeah, quick, heady. get the real rushy kind of high, which is nice. And the thing is, too, but have you noticed also, though, when you get, like, certain strains and it's like you'll you do that first thing and you're like, oh, yeah, this is it. This has got something. And then, like... It, it's like a week later you'll do it again and it'll be like, like nothing. Eh. Eh. Like, or you share it to someone else and you're like, this is the most ultimate thing ever and they're like, eh, that's right. okay. No, it's just weird because it's like, it's very much, I think uh, it's the thing about being a grower is that you, you get a chance to smoke it when nobody else physically could even smoke it because yeah. it's barely smokable, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that at those moments you get those flavors that you mm-hmm. don't get when it's yeah. properly dried, you know what I mean? So then all of a sudden it goes it and you, all, yeah, and you lose thing. those little terps that are just like, oh my God, it's like this tastes <laughs> per Like you, you can name it, you got it, you're, you're nailing it, and yeah. then all of a sudden the next day you're like, got none of that anymore. Oh, that's weird gosh, how that yeah. happened. It's the mahi-mahi effect, we call that. You know, when you catch <laughs> yeah. mahi and it's all beautiful and then you pull it out, you're like, eh, it's kind of uh, gray. Uh, not so hot.
I'm kind of, you know, people sometimes say I don't work my lines, and I don't. I really enjoy the beauty and the magic of that initial hybrid of two distinct things coming together to make that magic, that F1 magic. And I feel like F2 is this beautiful treasure chest that then the next person gets to open. So usually I only line bleed to make myself tools like the the blood or the goji. I'm you know I'm thinking for the goji, it's kind of a secret. I'm thinking about letting go the snow lotus male just to move forward. So I'm kind of taking things that I want to keep around a few generations just so that if I want to I can revisit them. And but really you know I, I always encourage people to F2 everything. That's where it's at. Like, there's so much to... Be it's so funny because whenever I tell people about breeding, I'm like, yeah, when you get to F2, it's going to be all over the fucking place. You're yeah. going to be going nuts. Like, there's some greats. That's where you find the magic. Shit, there's too. a lot of <laughs> junk. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's it's like running through the junk there. That, that, that's literally the the moment where you're sifting yeah. through the wreckage of all the different combos and you're kind of like, there's the grandmothers and the grandfathers and the yeah. uncles and the cousins and they're all in there. You know what I mean? you got to, like, pick out who's... Who in the family is even worth keeping? You know yeah, what I mean? Like Uncle Fester, yeah. or is it? Ooh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you're like, sometimes they're just some amazing things, but they're very f- kind of far and few between. Like, I, it's always uh, for me. I mean, F1 is always just fun to play around with. F2 is always like now the work starts, yeah. and then pretty much I'm not even happy until around the fifth generation before yeah. I can start to say, oh, okay, now it's good. Those, that's where it kind of sucks, like, between the F2 yeah. and the F0, oh, man. Well, and that's breeding. That's, like, that's your will over nature. It's you bringing forth something you want to come about by putting your intent and putting your work into it over a long period of time. And I think that's so awesome, and I have such deep respect. But for me, I really like people trying to make something good in the initial pack. If you're, you know, And I fear if you don't find something good in the first generation, I didn't do a good job. And in the second generation, I think it's that's your time to really find the magic. And, you know, maybe in the future, different things will happen. And well, with the new seed companies coming up, maybe that'll be different. But mm-hmm. right now, that, you know, I can well, you know, the key, the, the key also has been, like, now you have the confidence when you have a legal operation growing that you don't have to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's been the issue for me for years has always been, like, man, I've moved... 15 times yeah. with you know every time having to bring all your genetics and box it all up and take it to A to B to C and you know end up like yeah. either mislabel lose who knows what you know along the way and so that's been the struggle and that's actually been the most difficult part of the whole process beyond I mean, anything I mean whereas if you sit in the same place and do the fucking same thing over and over again you're going to end up with a, a result at a certain point that's pretty consistent yeah. you know what I mean it's like hey I didn't even move but it's that uh, that learning curve over and over and over again and it's keeping all those moms around, you know what yeah. I mean? And potential moms. And, oh, that's the hardest you know, part. And everybody's, and labeled, and you know, it's like, well, nightmare. It's sometimes. like being a librarian. I know I have about 300 males and females. And that's imagine. all I do all day is I just try and keep everybody alive along I, with the kids. I can imagine because, uh, and one thing I've noticed with your stuff is, I mean, you got resin growing on resin on a lot of strains, so you're definitely focused on... It's a male selection kind of... Yeah, your really males are male. on... That's why I pl- selected a male out of your material, because I was like, well, whatever he's doing, he's doing it right, because his males... Whatever he's got, he's like, he's just consistently putting out product, which you can almost... Like, I have another friend of mine who I was hoping he was going to come to the show tonight, uh, Nick from Boulder Wellness. Mm-hmm. He's been growing some of your... He was all excited. Oh, my God, Bodie's going to be there. He basically said if you go into a room without even knowing what... What? Just going like, yeah, yeah. that's a Bodhi, that's a Bodhi, that's a Bodhi, that's oh, a Bodhi. Wow. So that's, you know, he... It has its he, own vibe, yeah. It has its own vibe, for sure. And the resin, uh, the, just just the, the footprint, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. just certain types. 
so and it's interesting because you're working with land races and land races are not really known for just being that resonant everybody always thinks of resinous plants as new school you know reworked yeah. material well, where where in what region do you think was the most like resin content not size of trikes but because that's a difference pure grease yeah because the difference is in, like sativas you get like a shitload of small small glands but lots of them in like a forest yeah. you know like in a, in a hemp field vibe you know what I mean and yeah then and you it's get more loose and there's a lot more surface area too so and then you so. get the the more indica dominant ones mm-hmm. that are just bulbous and, and massive and there's a lot of lot going on inside so you get a lot of you know you get more for your money maybe weight wise yeah. at that point because there's less stock involved but what region do you think the for males would be the most consistent on resin production. You know, I always everyone says Afghan, of course, because they think Afghan, yeah, Afghan, Afghan. But but Afghan, it's so tight that there's not as much surface area. I think if you did like a thing where you kind of almost weighed it out and you had a sativa and an indica, I think mm. you almost get more resin out of a fluffy, big sativa than an indica. Yeah. But there's the just. Or the is it the weight? Of, I mean, it's hard to say though because a lot of times the the actual resin on those indicas yeah. are just heavier like you oh, know it's, it's just like yeah it's like a sh- it's like that magic shell stuff you put on your ice cream but it's nice. just made out of cam- cannabinoids there terrible we hate, <laughs> hate to have that stuff that sounds terrible but for plants you know I got a plant from a friend recently that I grew out of seeds and it's a Kashmiri mm-hmm. well it's actually from Azad from the, it, the which is the place between Pakistan and Kashmir uh-huh. And it is so incredibly resinous that it just blows my mind. And I'm just like, wow. That's, and that's a straight just land race from that it's, place. You know, I think it's not, is you know, land, there's things, you know, there's jungly plants, there's land races, heirlooms. It's got, it's a worked line, but it's a worked line from that region that's probably gone back a long time. That's been really a tough one for me has been over the years. Like, I worked at Sensi Seeds from, uh, let's see, 89, 90 mm-hmm. to like 93. So for those three years I was working there. And when I worked there, their whole attitude, because I used to bring stuff to work, and I, this is when I was doing the bubble gum. My friend brought seeds from America, was growing them out, was bringing them to work. And every time I brought them in, the boss Alan would be like, "Oh, that's a, that's just a black domina <laughs> variant or something." You know what I mean? And I'd be like, mm, "Came out of my friend's drawer in America." You know what I mean? <laughs> but then, but the sad part about it is, a lot of the times when you did work with these genetics. At the end of it all, when you really got down to the nitty gritty, you find out it really was a sense. Oh yeah, it's a sensey. This. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, even with kind even, of full circle, huh? Even with sour, you know, being a sensey super skunk variant, which it makes sense because it grows very much that same spiral, that big tall stacked spiral of yeah. fluff, fluff balls, and so it was kind of sad. I was like, really, you guys really did tap into like everything. Yeah. Like, it all came through you. You know what I mean? And it was like, I know it's not true, but it is like a chunk. Big chunk, yeah. a huge chunk. Um. Yeah, so that was from an old uh, Adam Dunn podcast uh, from 2016. So, yeah, I don't know what else to add except I went back and listened to these episodes because I opened a pack of seeds that this um, gentleman named Bodie made and they were an 11 pack. They come in 11 packs and um, he's generally, um, so if you buy two packs off him, he usually will throw in a free pack and the pack that I opened was a free pack and um, so um, it was called Lemon Hash Plant, and this year I um, went away for a week and left my garden, 
and one of these lemon transplants were not a female. And when I came home, I had lemon hash plant male pollen all over my garden. So I guess um, the, many of the genetics that from the seeds I'll be growing for the next few years will be from this lemon hash plant that this uh, gentleman Bodie um, developed by crossing different things. He'll, he'll go back and use plants from like 1988 that were acquired and then combine them with a, a land race that he may have collected in Nepal or down in Mexico. And I don't really know the right word for the word land race because cannabis is being cultivated by human beings around the world uh, for thousands of years. And there's regions where they're always, even though they're called land races, they were selectively planted by people. And uh, so there's different indigenous people working these plants and so I don't really know the, the definition of a pure land race, I guess, would be American hemp that you see in a, in a ditch. And uh, so there's a lot of things about genetics and cannabis, uh, from what I understand, it will revert to a certain thing if it's left to grow. Um, so it's, you know, what's called land races is generally something that, just comes from an indigenous people that uh, worked it in a traditional way by just doing basic selections and not all this uh, fanciness. But it, it is funny that because all this fanciness really is an ancient technology of um, let's um, breed these plants and not breed the other plants. And this Adam Dunn show, there was this one episode where they were, they were talking about Jamaica and how they introduced they had really nice Jamaican um, ganja that was growing, and then they re they introduced so much uh, hybridized indicas to Jamaica that much of Jamaica does no longer have this really nice uh, sativa that grows to be like 10 and 20 feet high. And what they did was they, um, I, from what I understand, they were trying to use indica plants that were male that were very tall where a lot of the frosty male uh, indica plants are not uh, the tall ones. They're the shorter ones. And so it, it's fascinating to see that, you know, you can, um, the characteristics of ganja grown in different places can change. So a Jamaican land race right now can have a lot of these um, genetics that were um, worked out in Dutch greenhouses. <laughs> They were collected down in Africa and Southeast Asia and all these different parts of the world, brought back to Holland and, and worked in their facilities and then distributed as like these commercial seeds that come in 10 and 11 packs. But I've also seen that these seeds are very expensive and it's just so nice that once you get some seeds, you're good. You can just make more seeds. You go to your local patient's union I went to my local patient's union the other day, and I brought seeds last month to share, and I handed some out. So this month, someone just came up to me and gave me a whole handful of, you know, of um, a plant called Dragon's Blood Kush. And the Dragon's Blood is real famous in Hawaii, and they, I think that would be called um, a land race where people in Hawaii have known about it for decades. And the sap of certain 
phenotypes, which, you know, you'll get a pack of seeds and you'll get certain different variants. And I think the terminology is called phenotypes. So you'll plant um, 5, 10, 20 of these seeds and a few of them will have this blood red sap. <laughs> and it's, it's frightening. And uh, so I'm looking forward to playing around with Dragon's Blood, Kush. And this gentleman named Bodie, he, he actually popularized the Dragon's Blood back on the mainland. He knew someone in Hawaii who gave him some of these, and he crossed them out. And they're, they're in some of his seeds. So I recommend them. Um, I'm really happy. And then Adam Dunn, his seed company is called TH Seeds. And so they're both very solid people who've been around for 30, 40 years. I think Adam said 1989. So yeah, he's coming up on um, on you know 30 years. You know, he said yeah he he got to Amsterdam in 1989. So yeah, that's sounds like 30 years in the biz. And um, Bodhi has been around for decades himself. So. Um, all right, so I think I'm going to take a nice, another nice break. That was a pretty long clip, though. But, yeah, so the other thing that I'm really excited about, though, is just having other uh, cannabis gardeners in my area and how we're all um, we're, we're working on this new. I found a CBD strain that I love. It's called Deadlights, and we made seeds from that, and they're growing right now from seeds that we made. And um, they were just self-pollinated. We grew enough of it the first time that it self-pollinated itself and produced female, all-female seeds. So, um, but that that strain, I took it to a lab. I don't know if I reported about this last month, but I took it to Steep Hill Labs, and they came back. It was it was several months old. It was all evaporated. It wasn't fresh, but it still came out with a. 10% CBD level and a 4% THC level. So it wouldn't really qualify as the USDA uh, version of a hemp CBD, but um, it's more of called uh, a CBD flower plant because it has all the aromatic qualities of high THC plants. But, it, but overall, um, it's wonderful for making topicals and tinctures because of that 10% CBD level. But one of the new strains that we're going to um, play with in the next few months is called Nagual, N-A-G-U-A-L, Nagual. So my friend has Nagual seeds. I think she procured them. She purchased them, and then I bought one. I have one feminized Nagual seed. So it, it'll be it'll be really fun because I'm at a different elevation, and we're going to both grow the Nagual uh, strain of CBD plant. And another CBD uh, strain that I recently acquired is from Homegrown Natural Wonders, and it's uh, Canna, C-A-N-N-A, dash, wreck, <laughs> like train wreck, Canna wreck. And uh, so Nagual and Canna wreck are on my list of seeds that I'm going to probably germinate maybe next month after I'm done traveling for Thanksgiving. So right now my garden is pretty much, I have one nice sativa growing outdoors and everything else is chopped down and I'm just really excited to have a radio show to just give everyone my update of what, what's going on with my cannabis gardening. So it's all hanging up drying and I'm hoping not to dry it too much and turn it to sawdust. 
<laughs> and um, I'm looking forward to getting more lessons and uh, becoming better at the drying curing process. So I'm going to go ahead and play some new music that I, I really am an old person though. Unless a new musician is singing an old standard that I recognize, I generally do not notice new musicians. So I think it's important for me to go out and see live music a lot. And um, But I discovered uh, an artist who's been popular. I think she's been popular for about 10 years. And I, I just discovered her. And I think she's wonderful. She's, she's singing an old sublime song from the 1990s. So I'm going to place uh, Lana Del Rey. Summertime, and the living's easy. Rally's on the microphone with Ross and G. All the people in the dance will agree that we're well qualified to represent the LBC. Me, me and Louie, we're gonna run to the party and dance to the rhythm. It gets harder.
Yeah, Lana Del Rey. So even that song is a few years old. And I, I stumble upon things, and I was like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'd like to play something like that on the show. And that's also in my car. So my next topic that I picked tonight is Oklahoma and how um, that is a great place. Uh, I've been following a person on YouTube, um, and it's titled Gardening with Leon. So I encourage you to look it up next time you're on YouTube, and he makes what's called wicking pots. And a lot of people call these sub-irrigated planters, but he calls them wicking pots. And he has um, the most low-cost uh, way to garden, and I just love it. And um, he uses a little tiny bit of synthetic fertilizer, so he'll use these fertilizers, and he... Generally, that is my uh, philosophy with you. I will use some synthetic fertilizer in my gardening. And um, he uses it like half strength and one quarter strength. So whatever you read on these packages of synthetic fertilizers, uh, try using 25% of what they recommend. And uh, you'll see, I I would like to do just a a side-by-side test one day of... um, You know, do two identical plants and you grow one with the recommended uh, amount of fertilizer, you know, per, you know, concentration in water that they add. And you do it to the 25% and see which soil. Because many of us are not using synthetic fertilizer purely. You know, like our our soil already has a lot of nutrition already in it, and it's just generally uh, covering to fill in a few holes. And um, I used one successfully, and it was at it was um, I think it's it, it basically it was at the end of the flowering period, and it was high in K, the um, potash part of the you know three numbers. But check out Gardening with Leon, and he his attitude about sub-irrigated planters is just so cool. And I, I used these ones that were pretty much pre-engineered for five-gallon buckets, and they're called Grow Bucket. And um, I've had really good r- results, and I'm going to be using more and more sub-irrigated planters in my gardening because it's just, for one thing, a raised bed is just so much easier to work with. You're not bending over. And so I think ergonomically, uh, gardening on raised beds is where, you know, especially as people get older and older, they don't not need to be bending over that much. And you'll see uh, Leon on his YouTube channel, he, 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 he sits down on a chair and he does you know, a lot of strenuous work by sitting down on the chair and no, none of that bending or squatting for him. He looks to be probably in his mid-80s and what a cool, cool person. And I love being able to just have this show every month to come back and say, hey, what, this, this is what I've been um, checking out for the past month. But Gardening with Leon, his attitude about chemical fertilizers and um, he's just not he's he's not sweating the small stuff and that's what i really like you know where i see a lot of organic and living soil people they're sweating a lot of small stuff and the overall cost of their setups as far as carbon footprints looks way higher than if than if the person just used maybe 25% of their garden with 
chemical fertilizers instead of trying to so overcompensate building this fancy living soil with all these fancy ingredients where um, you can go to your local farm co-op and get everything you need to make what's called a super soil. And then um, usually um, uh, if you make the super soil light enough, you'll need just a little bit of chemical fertilizer right at the end. So that's where I'm at with my evolution and how I want to do my sub-irrigated planters. I'm going to have mostly organic material, but I believe right at the end or maybe toward the beginning, I would use a little bit additional nitrogen, but that would be probably even before I even transplant it in, into the sub-irrigated planters. But I uh, posted a picture on the slideshow of um, someone who was sprouting 50 seeds in a two by four sub-irrigated planter. So if you want to see it, it's in the webpage for this um, episode, which is being recorded on November 7th, 2019. So you can check it out in the little slideshow, um, blogtalkradio.com backslash Susan Weed. And um, so you can find the People's Medicine Show at that web address. So. It, 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 it feels funny. I'm talking, and sometimes while I'm doing the show, I, I feel like I'm talking like someone's in the room, and I'm waiting for them to, to talk back. So you're always welcome to call in and talk back at me. We have about 45 minutes left of this show, and I'm starting to run out of clips, so I'll probably end the show a little early tonight. But sometimes I think I've ended the show, and I still had a little bit more show in me. So we'll see. So let's go back and listen to Bodhi, uh, this uh, cannabis seed maker. He says, I'm not even a breeder. I don't even wear that title. He, you know, he puts interesting plants in the same room with each other and makes really cool seeds that are become world famous. <laughs> and he doesn't even release them in a stable way where you'll get an 11 pack of his seeds and you'll get several different kinds of <laughs> genetics that are popping out, but he gives a little background of what really made him go all in and turn totally pro when it came to um, making seeds and sharing plant knowledge and wisdom. All right, you were talking about how you uh, transitioned a lot of your work from the uh, some work that you were doing in the Amazon, and I was more curious about how it was that that transitioned into your work with cannabis and the different plants that you were working with there, you know, and, or was it more just like a, a spiritual aspect in terms of you know, things that you were finding out there. Well, you know, I really think the turning point for me working with cannabis was the work I was doing with ayahuasca down in the Amazon. Like, I realized, I think, there that I was that, that was my path was plant medicines, and I realized also that ayahuasca wasn't my medicine, but the spirits that I connected with there were telling me that they have work for me with a different plant that's more the thing, and that's where it really kind of came together where I realized, okay... I'm working with plants, but my path is, is cannabis. And, like, I think that was, like, you know, I have a couple big turning points in my life, you know, smoking in the Himalayas. That was my, you know, an inkling, and that really real, made me tune into what was going on. And then the ayahuasca just sealed the deal. And I think plant medicines are a really effective strategy, not only for making the world a better place, but for becoming a better plant breeder. Anytime you work with nature, I mean, it, you're opening yourself and you're opening your heart up to something so much bigger. So yeah, it, it, it's really cool. Whenever I uh, stumble up 
along people who seem to be a lot like me, that we all seem to have that ayahuasca thing going on where, oh, that's part of your story? Yeah, yeah, I um, went there. And it, it is uh, just amazing how you, you learn to understand what intention is. I think that's one of the things I think I've noticed about people who drink in ayahuasca, that they, they have the intention thing down pat, that they understand that there's some real power when you put forth an intention and um, I'm still learning, but um, I, I think I have an idea of what of what of what this is. And so, another really cool thing I do is I grow my own psilocybin, and I put the title as legal psilocybin on on the show tonight. And yeah, there's several places in the country right now where home uh, psilocybin. Uh, cultivation is not being enforced, that people are um, growing it in Denver and Oakland. I think they've actually done like town proclamations that we will use no uh, public um, resources to pursue these unjust um, federal drug laws about growing a stupid mushroom. And it, it, it all goes back to my experience with mushrooms. I, I moved to the uh, south part of Florida in the 1980s, and it, it's just a total culture growing up, you know, for kids in Florida that if you live in South Florida and it rains two days in a row, you can go to your any nearest cow field with any kind of organic matter, any field that has any kind of organic matter, and you're going to see a lot of psilocybin mushrooms. And all you have to do is just wait for the rain to be two consecutive days, and you can have all the mushrooms you want. And there was actually a court case that pretty much decriminalized fresh psilocybin mushrooms in, um, I think it was back in the 1990s. And so technically, fresh psilocybin mushrooms in the state of Florida are 100% legal. And I can tell you for a matter of fact that one time, I think it was maybe the early 2000s during Bush, or maybe right before Bush, uh, we were out in the field. We filled the trunk of our car with uh, psilocybin mushrooms, and we were having a grand old time. And um, we ran out of gas. And I think it was on uh, like a strip of highway, you know, in sugarcane fields. Not, I think, it was, yeah, it was right on the edge of the sugarcane fields out near Okeechobee, Florida. And we were completely out of gas. And I don't even think we had money. <laughs> we would have mushroom picking without gas or money. And uh, so we're broken, on the, broken down on the side of the road. And um, we, we opened up the trunk, and people were coming by going, oh, do you have a gas tank? No, we don't even have a gas tank. And uh, we, several people stopped just to make sure we're okay. And I think some people did leave us like a gallon of water because <laughs> we were going to probably die, you know. And, uh, but they couldn't really, you know, help us fetch any gas. But they stopped to check us out. And um, that's the thing about uh, Florida, that there's a lot of fond memories of just cool people. And um, so we showed several of the people who stopped to make sure, you know, we, we were trying to hail people down to give us a ride to the gas station, but and they would stop. And um, when they saw the psilocybin, a few of us, uh, we made a, a cash transaction. So I don't know if the statute of limitations is 
over. But I remember also the state trooper came by, and he saw the trunk full of – and he knows that, yeah, that's really not an enforceable thing. Like if the farmer – the person the, – basically the rules in Florida are you'll get in trouble for mushrooms if the farmer says – uh, yeah, I want to press charges. I don't want people trespassing on my lawn. And they're mushroomers. Uh, anyone who's um, spent their childhood in Florida and ate mushrooms had stories. My friend Gwendy has a story about her and her girlfriend were out in the cow fields, and uh, they didn't know to do. The farmer came out with the salt gun and he was going to shoot them or make them stay and get arrested and they started kissing <laughs> and making out with each other, her and her girlfriend and when the farmer finally came up and saw them, he was like, oh and he saw them kissing he was like, I thought you were the mushroomers <laughs> and they turned around and they, they thought quickly uh, escaping from the farmer that day, which could have been rock salt in their in their eyeball, who knows? But it, it happens down in Florida when you go on um, people's land, you might get rock salt in your eyeball. But um, but anyway, it is really cool that just like cannabis, that psilocybin is sort of becoming uh, less um, taboo. But I've noticed that the people on YouTube that are proponents of cultivating a lot of them refuse to show their faces and they wear masks and there is a lot of um still shame that people have about growing mushrooms or maybe it's part of the cult of being a mushroom grower that you don't show your face so it, it, it's a weird little culture i've been trying to grow psilocybin mushrooms for 25 uh, now nah, probably i i probably bought the homestead mushroom kit back in the 1980s. So yeah, 35 years. And um, so even to this day, I may be 50 to 75% successful. I get a high degree of contamination. And again, you know, if anyone's trying to grow psilocybin, you just do not be discouraged. Keep trying different things. Like the last thing that I've tried that really I believe, and I have to keep repeating it in order for it to be scientific, is I've been boiling my PF Tech jars twice. And it just seems to somehow, I think what happens is you boil them once for 90 minutes and you boil them like a, in a pressure cooker. And 90 minutes is basically the bare minimum that you should be uh, cooking these PF Tech jars for. And then I'll let them cool for 24 hours. And I think what happens is there is still, even after 90 minutes of cooking, there are still these little tiny endospores that can still bloom. And um, I think um, boiling on them a second time. So I'm going to try this again. I'm going to do half my jars where I boil them once and then half my jars where I boil them twice and just try to see because I swear I, I've been getting a lot less uh, contamination and more success. And there's this whole thing also is when you're creating a medium for mushrooms, it's what's called a, quote, field capacity. So I tried growing uh, an albino penis envy strain last month, and I used coconut coir for the first time, and they gave you 
specific directions with how much water to put in it. And even just a little bit too much will um, make it too much moisture will cause pathogens that will prevent the mushrooms from maturing. And um, yeah, so it, it's a wonderful, wonderful hobby. I love it. And um, yeah, it's, it, it is interesting though that Florida has a really hardcore, uh, you can get in a lot of trouble in some parts of Florida for even marijuana. But it, it was so funny that the culture there was like, mushrooms, that's no big deal. That's a trespassing problem. And um, But the fact of the matter is, I think the way it was phrased in the law was, if they're not being dried, um, they're, they're, no, they're not considered a, um, a drug product. That as soon as you dry mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, like in a dehydrator or with a desiccant, and you get them dry enough where they're like cracker dry, then you basically do have an item of commerce. And um, I think that's what this uh, wise woman thing really teaches me is, um, yeah, you're either selling or telling. Are you making a, an item of commerce and selling it? Then you really shouldn't really be talking about it. So that's what's kind of fun is I am not in the mushroom business. I would like to someday uh, offer education services, how people can grow their own, but I do not sell mushrooms or I do not sell packaged marijuana. I um, share it with people, but I, it's not part of my uh, income stream. And I'm um, real happy that this, this uh, blog talk radio doesn't cost any money. And I'm doing this show basically for free and also to develop my own teaching skills and my like speaking uh, habits, which was a lot of fun. The other night I do five to seven minute speech on the seven rivers of healing. And I did very little um, uh, preparation and it was quite funny because I was um, messing up with words and maybe I should take a little break and give give the People's Medicine Show my Toastmasters um Spiel, five to seven minute spiel of what the um, seven rivers of healing are. <laughs> there we go with the tangent again. It would be really wonderful to have um, a way to not go on tangents, but I think going on tangents and talking and thinking of other things is quite quite the magic and the theater of the mind of doing a blog talk radio show is getting sidetracked. So I was talking about fungi and legalized psilocybin fungi, which is now legal, I think, in Denver and Oakland officially. And then there's other little municipalities one by one that are saying, let's not prosecute this. This is a positive medicine that we need. And uh, it's not a criminal act. So I'm going to play something that the DenverPost.com um, posted. And it's an interview with someone who grows their own psilocybin mushrooms. When you're tripping, it's an experience that is very emotional. It can be terrifying. Like, you kind of feel like you're dying. 
there's something to be learned from it. More of your life force lies on the other side of your fear, which I feel like psilocybin mushrooms force you into your fear, which I'm saying is, is healthy to face these things about yourself. Make you realize what needs to change or what you need to do better. And there are other parts of the experience where you really appreciate what you have and who you are and everything that makes you unique. The light and the dark is kind of all contained in that experience, but I'm speaking you know, from my experience on it. Well, it's basically a cannabis tent that uh, has been repurposed to grow mushrooms. But the point of me getting the tent was to just have an apparatus that is, you know, sterile. I've got the air filter in there so the air is clean. I've got the heater in there so it's the right temperature for the mushrooms. And I've got the shelves all rigged with lights. Everything in this apartment is like mushroom money, which I wouldn't be able to afford any of this if I didn't start doing that. And technically, growing mushrooms isn't wrong. You know, nobody's getting hurt over it unless, you know, your hypothetical scenario of like somebody takes too high of a dose and they put themselves in a dangerous situation. But besides that, it's like growing cannabis, you know, you're just taking something from nature and growing that. So for me, it's a tool to, for me to be better, you know, look at myself and just life differently, but also to be able to grow that mushroom and provide that same change to somebody else. So that's basically why I started growing. And it's just an enjoyable process to begin with, it's just interesting. You know, fungus is pretty cool. Yeah, so being a, a mushroom cultivator, and I think I'm more comfortable with being able to um, teach other people how to grow their own instead of <laughs> being someone's mushroom supplier. Because I think when you grow your own, you're not going to have that problem with um, your intention being off. Your intention is going to get refined through the process of cultivating your own. So that is my just uh, advocacy for uh, growing your own psilocybin mushrooms if that's what you want or you want to have some mushrooms in your house for a rainy day uh, special occasion, uh, they're, they're, it's nice to have a supply. Um, the, so, um, yeah, so I wanted to talk about, um, yeah, just whatever I'm, I, I think right before the show started, I was thinking about the um, the um, seven rivers of healing, 
and how, you know, reconnecting uh, a spiritual connection. Uh, I'm trying to think. Whoa, where is it? Here it is. Okay. So number three, the third river of healing, restore energetic connections. And strengthen and feed health and incite strong responses. So I think when a person is ingesting probiotics and getting more fiber in their diet and uh, yeah, and then now there's this concept of phages where people have been very ill and they they introduce these phages, which are sort of like a probiotic um, product and they ingest these things, and they're healed um, miraculously. And um, so I don't want to sound too much like the celery juice shaman, um, Anthony Edward or whatever, but um, I think that is going to be the, the future in, of high-tech medicine is people are going to have their biomes um, analyzed and fed and nourished. And um, it is really cool, though, that I think probiotics and introducing um, chemical, not chemical, um, life forms to, to our biome has so, such profoundness. Like I've been uh, making this El Ruteri yogurt uh, for the past few months, and uh, it's quite, it, it just blows my mind that, I was looking at, um, you know, the class of hormones that oxytocin is and how complicated the whole hormonal system is to uh, how do you increase one hormone without increasing, you know what I mean? Like, the, I love the way Susan Weed uh, talks about, like, oh, as soon as someone says they're balancing hormones, it's crazy because once one hormone goes up, another one's going to go up, and there, it's all like this big beautiful dance where one's going down and another one's going up and um, I'm really blown away how I believe this El Terry yogurt that I began eating a couple months really had a profound effect on my whole like hormonal like adrenal complex and um, it feels wonderful and um, I'm, I'm hoping not to ever have to kill my biome off again by you know using too many antibiotics or whatever because I believe that I'm restoring an energetic connection that I probably had at one time by having some more of these um, type of probiotic um, strains of bacteria coming back into my life. And I love the fact um, that there's a skin biome and that there's actual probiotics for skin that you could spray in your body, and it's not a product that you have to keep using. No, it's like a vaccine. You just, like, inoculate, and it goes off and starts living. And uh, it's pretty exciting, you know, that I don't think um, the, the other profound thing that I think I did lately with my health was um, I stopped eating refined wheat. Like, I just swore it off. None. No pizza. No ravioli. Nothing. And um, I did it, and I don't know if it was the power of suggestion, but I really did feel like I was kicking dope about, like, day three or four. It felt like I was detoxing from opiates. <laughs> so I don't know if it was just the power of suggestion that someone told me that that was going to happen or not, but um, I totally 
you know, challenge anyone that's having health problems. They try to stop eating any refined wheat, refined flour, just like knock it off. And um, I was trying to use um, almond flour, but I was basically just eating a keto thing. And then um, I recently just went back to just using a sprouted um, Ezekiel bread, you know, and because I believe that a lot of the people in the keto community, by not having any of whole grains in their diet, they're forming, they, they get into trouble with biomes. So it, it is pretty how not eating wheat probably had a profound effect and then introducing these probiotics. But then as time goes on, not having a little bit of uh, whole wheat and whole grains in your diet uh, will um, mess you up. But who knows? I think everybody has different chemistries, and if you've only just ate brown rice and that's the only grain that you have in your diet, uh, so be it. But I, I think a lot of us are European in ancestry and perhaps our whole you know, genome and um, genetic disposition that, yeah, we're supposed to have some, some whole grains in our diet. And the whole thing with the biome is these soluble and insoluble fibers are also, you know, they're, they're dependent on by the bacteria in our bodies to live, that we're, we're feeding ourselves on so many different levels, especially when you look at fiber and its connection to health, that people with high, high amounts of fiber in their diet have higher amounts of health. And um, I, then they say, you know, of course, there's, there is such a thing as too much fiber, but it's hard to... to uh, I don't think it's really that uh, easy to have too much fiber. I believe if you had too much fiber, you're probably starving yourself in some other way. So who knows? You know, I shouldn't uh, – I think who knows would be uh, a mark off me on my Toastmasters meeting. So – let me go ahead and um, try to do my Toastmasters spiel for the Seven Rivers of Healing. So I wanted to uh, talk about the Seven Rivers of Healing today. And these are, these are sort of a philosophy and um, a protocol for uh, treating yourself for any kind of suffering, whether it's mental or physical. And you can use these Seven Rivers of Healing for any type of problem that you want to confront and perhaps alleviate. So there's, these seven rivers are ordered in a way that, uh, that they start increasing in um, uh, severity of harm. So the first four have very little to zero severity of harm. And I think you, um, the person who designed these, Susan Weed, says they have zero um, degree of severity harm, but I'm not sure. I shouldn't really be quoting Susan. So the first river of healing is embrace emptiness, and that is being able to not have anything to do and to just sit inside and observe and notice um, things perhaps that you're not noticing before, um, changing a perspective. But just embracing our own emptiness and is being able to say, I don't know. I don't know what's going on or 
and to let go of any predisposed ideas and shame or blame that you have. And I think um, being able to just empty ourselves of all these extra thoughts is um, where oftentimes everything gets reset right there <laughs> in, in the first river of healing, is being able to just let go of all the extra things that are just interfering with our own body uh, repairing itself. And I, I love um, when Susan tells the story about Andrew Weil in one of his books, how he did a diary going, oh, yeah, today I had a sore stomach. Today I had a, a pimple on my ear. Today I had a headache. You know, when, when a person does a diary of their aches and pains, there's aches and pains every day and they go away. And I think embracing emptiness allows just things to just go away by themselves and not even worry about them and give, or give them thought. But in the event that we're still not relieved by embracing emptiness, we can, we can, we can move on to the second river of healing, which would be investigate options. Like what the, I would say the first option I would investigate would be like, I wonder what the hell this is, or if, if it's a, if it's a common complaint, you know, or, and I think every option, I think the second river of healing is basically maybe someone that's listening to this show is investigating options. They want to know about phages. So I think uh, opening ourselves up and I was, um, yeah, I think um, it, um, looking at a variety of viewpoints and seeing, oh yeah, I think investigate options also is what do you have at hand? What what is completely around you? Like a lot of times people have dandelion growing outside their front door. And as far as calories burning, the dandelion may be the, the, the best shot as far as where do I have to go the, the, the nearest to me? I think that is an important thing to um, uh, understand in the second river of healing is, would be to seek out what's close to you and seek out what's flowing around you and um you know and move move outward in that in that way and that having to jump on a plane and go to peru may not be where 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 the option is you know like that would be an option that you would discover as you go further away in ge geography and hassle but i think um the older I get, the more calories I really want to save. And um, I come from a culture that shames people for being lazy and not wanting to work. And, um, yeah, I'm still getting over that. But I think as I get older, I'm understanding, oh, wow, there's a lot of people that were never called lazy. And they still got a lot of work done where um, I think people that are called lazy get less work done because then they have to deal with all that shame instead of uh, working on what they can. Um, but the third river of healing, I guess after you would um, investigate your options, would be restore energetic connections. And I was thinking about this the other night when I was at doing the speech at Toastmasters. Like, I, I think of energetic connections as sex, sex. And uh, that could be a lot of different things, though. I think the placebo um, effect would be a great thing for people to understand if they were atheist and not, 
into any kind of philosophy, I think that's the most simple way to heal. It's like, hey, if I really want this to, to work, it probably will. And um, expect, you know, and I don't think it, it, it's about putting on rose-colored glasses or putting on blinders, but um, if you want to form an intention and, and, and put it onto something, uh, go for it, you know. And um, I think uh, Restore Energetic Connections could be what I did tonight when I played the old Al Green album that I, I loved when I was um, 22 years old. Um, yeah, I think I was 22 when that came out. And um, so, yeah, um, re, you know, prayer, um, I'm trying to think of what other things. See, when I was, um, after I did the speech the other night, I was like, why didn't I mention that for uh, restoring an energetic? Uh, I think a lot of people that go to 12-step um, groups and they uh, recover from addiction, and I think the meeting place of people going to meetings is really an important way for them to restore their energetic connections. And um, they're fighting a problem where the problem tells them that they don't have a problem. And going to that place of or a reminder of their disease of forgetfulness is a pretty powerful uh, way that... Um, Recovering addicts and alcoholics heal themselves is by going to their meetings, and um, so that's what I think. I think I explained that the other night as an an example of a way a person can restore energetic connections. I would imagine um, making amends and uh, fixing a relationship that's not right would be restoring an energetic connection. So those are some of the examples I wanted to give for. Um, the third river of healing. So the fourth river of healing, strengthen and feed health. And I, I think I'll, I'll go on to my, my spiel about um, heart rate variability. I, I love exercising and working and just like hitting it hard. And uh, I noticed that as I get older, my recovery rate is like all over the place when I overexert myself, and I think that is a part of health, is to overexert yourself and to put some stress on your body and mind and then be able to gracefully recover in a sort of a predictable, um, easy-paced way. So I don't think there's any trick to tricking yourself into recovering better, but I think it, it's about um, just being slow and easy at a, at a constant rate and, um, you know, st strengthen and feed health. Uh, it, it's so funny, too, because I was talking about sharing food. And that would totally be restore energetic connections. But sharing food comes right back into health. Um, I think it's really cool to um, know how to cook for yourself and know how to cook for others. I was thinking about, though, the, the theme of tonight was to um, make soup, you know, and I think as a person that lives by themselves, man, that would be so cool if someone uh, made me a bowl of soup. <laughs> you know, it's just not in the cards right now for a person living alone. But I think when I'm visiting my um, uh, friends and family later this month, perhaps we will be eating soup together. And um, I think strengthen and feed health is where most of our problems are um, 
you know, maintain not 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 our problems. I think strengthening feed health is basically where you're going to be maintaining. And I don't think a person could really live a day on this planet without um, doing something. And I I think what's really cool too is when you understand that this river entails going to get food can be just as pleasurable as consuming food. <laughs> and it it is sort of a giveaway dance and then throwing away the the excess food in the compost pile. <laughs> and it is uh, sort of a giveaway dance like breathing. But um moving and eating is uh where I would like to be able to conquer any kind of health challenges that I have and just stay inside these first four rivers that would entail that would prevent me from perhaps going to any other further more extreme thing and um I think a lot of people really can just stay right in the first four rivers so five river five is insight strong responses and this is where herbal medicine can become heroic you know when we have strong responses a lot of people have a philosophy that they can't heal without a strong response with this is to um yeah, that is absolutely absurd so i need to take a small break and then we'll come back but just um let me pause for a couple minutes and i'll come back and we'll we'll go into rivers five six and seven Yeah, so I'm back. So 
I really needed to pee. It's funny, being a self-produced show, I uh, have no way to uh, signal to another person if, if that ever happens. That would be a benefit of having a second person on the air with me to be able to take all over and um, in the event that I suddenly had to pee really bad. But I was drinking some uh, wonderful uh, lion's mane mushrooms today, and that's an example of something that's very profound, but it's not what I would call a strong response. And either the other um, thing I was talking about early is using these probiotics with the different phages mixed into them. Um, you, you notice something, but I don't know if I could call it a strong response because it just seems like a subtle response that has this deepness about it. But inciting strong responses, a lot of people think uh, tasting disgusting uh, herbs would be <laughs> um, the sole path to healing, where it could be, and um, but perhaps these are things that you just want to save for after you've tried uh, eating and moving and reconnecting and investigating uh, things that do not hurt or do not cost money and coming back to the first river of just embracing our own emptiness and um, opening our opening our souls and spirits to uh, receive the answer that we need to to make things um, just resolve but uh, inciting strong responses here's another you know thing where I would love to be able to um, list the list the things that people um, chase after, and um, I think spending a lot of money <laughs> on a cure that's a, that's inciting a strong response because you're getting you're becoming broke, and um, I think this this river of healing used to be called uh, try alternative medicine, <laughs> and. That's what I think of uh, inciting a strong response would be um, making yourself uh, less less um, with less money in your pocket. <laughs> so number six is take pills, uh, the um, the sixth river, and um, pills. I, I in the past few years I'm understanding that pills are designed to bypass your taste buds and bypass your esophagus and bypass sometimes even your stomach acid to be able to be processed uh, in the liver or perhaps in further on down in your um, body. Um, so yeah, there's very, um, pills are limited in many ways and um, it, it, it's so funny that the more I um, think about um, supplements, how um, I'm really not too sure why most supplement, you know, nutritional supplements like magnesium or vitamin D are, I guess, just for um, they're not encapsulated into um, a pill for the mechanism. It doesn't improve the mechanism, but I think perhaps the vitamin D is. Um, dispersed um, easier when, because it's like a, a liquid inside of a gel cap and um, but yeah I'm, I'm wondering about magnesium if, if it's better ingested in as a powder than as a pill 
But um, I've heard of many people have very um, profound effects by just you know getting their vitamin D and their um, and their magnesium um, artificially uh, increased by uh, ingesting it in a pill form instead of trying trying real hard to um, eat a lot of dark green vegetables and get get a plentiful amount in your food. So I'm not too sure how to really resolve the vitamin D problem uh, for many people, except by telling them that, yeah, you got to try to take a pill. And then I think there's even people that have problems where they have to move on to an injection of vitamin D. So I've seen many profound things, especially in the cluster headache com community, where people have increased their vitamin D um, blood level to really high amount. And um, they're able to um, prevent pretty debilitating, um, painful headaches. That's my experience lately with um, the sixth river of healing, take pills. And the seventh river is destroy obstacles. And I used to hear this like verbalized as like, this is the stage where you, you probably are going to die and you have to come to terms with death before you even um, attempt a lot of the things that may entail um, destroying an obstacle. And what's funny, too, because um, uh, several months ago, I, I went and got HPV um, lesions removed using an infrared technique, and I didn't even think about the fact that I could have... Um, died from just taking the general anesthetic and didn't really even occur to me how dangerous I was treading. But I was in that seventh river of healing where I was uh, allowing myself to go under a general anesthesia where uh, there needed to be an anesthesia person in the room along with the person who was removing the lesions. So I learned a lot but, and understand that um, it wasn't very uh, scientifically valid reason why I did it. I just felt desperate, like, well, at least that, let me try it. And I don't think it, it will work, but time will tell whether it improved or just made the problem worse. So this really is um, a stage where you want to, but when I think of the seventh river of healing, I often think about destroy obstacles where, Many times a person is going to die, and if they can destroy the obstacle that's keeping them from dying, which is often a hard feelings about dying itself. So it, it, it really is interesting how uh, modern society has really fucked us up with dying, how it should be a right just like going to the hospital to see babies getting born. Um, you know, there should be just as much of... Uh, like a, I don't know how to say it, a celebratory type of feeling about death in the way that it's a human right. And um, I think a, a lot of people are healed before death when they understand um, a lot of these, you know, real elemental um, things that are keeping us from being happy. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, end the show. <laughs> and this is great, though, that I, I ran out of time. And uh, this is End is Near from the I Get Joy 1989 Al Green album.
Yeah. 